0: Edwin L. Connor, his associate professor... Well, my doctorate is in English. I teach in the honors program at Kentucky State University. In the English program? In the Whitney Young School of Honors and Liberal Studies, an honors program that is modeled after Saint, the curriculum of St. John's College and adapted to the uh, environment of a historically black university.
1: In right.
0: Frankfort,
1: Frankfort, Kentucky. That's right. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thank you. We are here in Gatineau, Quebec, just outside of uh, Ottawa, at, what is this conference? It's
0: It's the annual conference of the Association for Core Texts and Courses, organization all of whose members teach in or have some affiliation with a program that uses primary texts. So great works. Great works, exactly. Harold Bloom's Western Canon. That's right. And not only the Western Canon, we, we are increasingly are including more and more of the world's great works. So it's really an international curriculum that we're thinking in terms of now.
1: And uh, you're here to deliver a paper on uh, the Greek critic Longinus. That's right. And he has a definition of what's great.
0: Actually, to say he has a definition is probably uh, a bit of an overstatement. He uses the Greek word hypsos. Uh, His title is perihypsos, concerning the sublime, or about the sublime, or on the sublime. Is the way it's usually translated. It's translated, however, in different ways. It's an uncommon Greek word, and in the context in which it exists, it permits of several different translations. Literary excellence, the sublime the grand style. So there's considerable debate among scholars as to exactly what he's talking about. And he never offers an extended definition.
1: But he's he's basically getting at a way of evaluating a work to determine whether or not it's better than something else.
0: Well, in a sense, what he does mean by that term, hypsos, is clearly a literary excellence of a kind that you cannot sustain for very long in long works. He tells us how we can identify it, how we recognize it, and how it is that the texts in which the sublime appears constitute great texts, and so great works. Is it like those
1: passages that take your breath away?
0: In a sense, yeah. He says uh, the first criterion for recognizing the sublime is that it takes us out of ourselves. So, yes, and that's uh, uh, taking your breath away is one way of putting it. But uh, sublime passages take us out of ourselves, In and again, he's not terribly specific, but clearly in different ways, one of which is it gives us a a, a moment of uh, transcendence, whatever that may mean to you it stimulates a kind of ecstasy it it may be that kind of recognition that Keats writes about and when he's uh, in his sonnet on reading chapman's homer uh, that aha moment of the discovery of a whole new world of of significance of meaning that you hadn't glimpsed before the immediate question is well
1: my sublime might be different than
0: your sublime. Exactly, and, and Longinus himself recognizes that. That's why that criterion that I just mentioned is only the first of three criteria for the sublime. The transport, or the ecstasy, is a characteristic of all of sublimity, but it's not a sufficient sufficient. There's also the characteristic that sublime passages and works in which there are sufficient number of them to be called sublime works of art, draw us back to them. They're memorable in a way that makes us want to return to them.
1: Okay, so memorability and a a
0: kind of a pull. Yes, an attraction. And he says, furthermore, when you go back to a sublime work, you experience something like the same experience over and over again. You find continual stimulation of thought and something like that original experience each time. So it's inexhaustible, virtually inexhaustible, in its meaning for you.
1: Okay, a couple things come up there then. I think I experienced that reading War and Peace. Yes. But... It wasn't so much... I mean, I was looking forward to those sublime passages, but I was also looking forward to returning to that whole world, which was different from my, quote, real world. That's right. So there's a, there's a couple things there then, is, and he's, he's alluding to both of those?
0: Yes. What I think you're referring to is what he calls the first cause or source of sublimity. And that is the power of great conception. That's the way his phrase is normally translated. One, by the way, one of the virtues, as well as one of the limitations of, of Longinus, is that he doesn't often define what he means by key words and phrases. Right. He more often illustrates them. He gives examples. Uh, Precedents. Yes. Yeah. And so... It's hard to say exactly what he means when he uses his key phrases, but the power of great conception, which is also translated uh, vigor of mental conception, intellectual strength might be a synonym, is an energy and a breadth and scope of intellect that is the primary criterion of sublimity. It engages your whole mind.
1: Yes, yeah, when I read that that great work, I was seeking wisdom. I felt that here was not the secret to life, but in that
0: right. realm. And I think that's uh, easily within the realm of what he's talking about, with the power of great conception. Now, I mentioned two of three criteria that are sure signs, surefire signs when combined of greatness in texts the third one is what has been called uh, the doctrine of universal consent that is the true sublime as he says satisfies all men at all times that's a bit of an overstatement he's I'm sure quite aware of his own hyperbole figure of speech mm-hmm. but he says, when I, Whenever men of different occupations, lives, interests, generations, and tongues all have one and the same opinion on the same subject, then the agreed verdict of each of such various elements acquires an authority so strong that the object of its admiration is beyond dispute.
1: So it's a kind of a
0: consensus? Yes, it is. Consensus over time. That's right. It's analogous to or, and, and maybe employs a consensus theory of truth. It's also consistent with, I think, a kind of, even a Darwinian understanding of survival of the fittest as applied to works of art.
1: In in other words, they can stand a whole bunch of negative criticism over time, but it
0: it continues to transcend that? Yes. Uh, Just as a genus or a species uh, survives, as long as it uh, adapts to changing circumstances, Circumstances that are always changing. So great works are remain great as long as they continue to meet the needs of generation after generation after generation as widely distributed around the world as possible among different classes, different ethnic groups, different linguistic groups, genders, the greater the diversity of human beings who experience those first two criteria, Mm -hmm. the transport and the ecstasy. And the the repetition of the experience. The more the number of people, the kinds of people, the different uh, different the kinds of people who experience that, the more the greatness of a work is established.
1: So that's kind of
0: proof. It is. It's certainly a kind of empirical uh, and even pro- approaches at least a scientific understanding of greatness. Insofar yeah. as uh, it's
1: almost like a, yeah, like a theory that. That keeps proving itself, uh, despite...
0: That's right. Yeah. In experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so in, in experience, in the empirical... Well, t-
1: it's, it lasts because it hasn't been disproven.
0: Yes, exactly. Keeps being validated. And the more experience there is to validate it, the, the more support it gets for its greatness. That is not to say that one day, like, uh, many scientific theories, it will be disproven there have many There have been many works considered great in the past that are no longer considered great, so I mean he's not Rudy, yeah, right he's example. not making some kind of uh supernatural claim about great works
1: right because again that's where where an age's taste comes in that's right uh, and and that fluctuates you know Shakespeare right. was out of favor for many
0: that's right a hundred and fifty years. years that's right. right. And it's similar to, and among the modern ideas that uh, Longinus anticipates is Eliot's idea in traditional on in the individual talent. The, the great tradition, as he sees it, is changed ever so slightly when a new member enters its ranks.
1: Well, he also said that, what is it? to be a, To be either a great poet or a great critic, you have to be
0: intelligent, which, which that's right. gets to this. That's right. That responds to Longinus' first criterion, the power of great conception, intellectual strength.
1: There's a great line, but I think it was the critic, uh, Lionel Trilling, who said, the job of the critic is to patrol the borders of the canon. It seems yes. to me that, that that's where... yes. All of the debate takes place. Who's good enough and why?
0: Yes. I I think there's something to that. and That's certainly consistent with what Longinus has to say. Because, uh, yeah, great works are always entering that realm and others are being demoted from that realm. And it is the job of the critic to determine. It's one of the functions, at least, of a critic to determine... To re-examine those works, see if they still merit that, that their place in, the, in what Bloom calls the canon.
1: The job then of a of a critic is to give it everything he or she has. You know, if they really are aff- affronted at the praise that a work is getting, it's it's incumbent upon them. Is it an argument? Yes. Is that how you see it? I think so. It's a whoever can marshal the best arguments, but then that's the problem with this whole thing. This is just your subjective opinion, and that's fine, but I don't really care for your opinion, because I think it's great.
0: Right. Well, there's a sense in which uh, Longinus' understanding of greatness, you know, insofar as it begins, and what's essential to it, is that ecstasy, that transport. It begins in the subjective. Yeah. The, subject, the individual subject of experience. What takes it beyond and makes it more than simply a matter of one's taste is not only that and the fact that you can repeat that experience every time you go to that work, but it is a consensus of many, many people who have the same kind of experience. It's not simply personal. It's, uh, to use a word that Sartre uses, transpersonal. What does that mean? It's the personal experience of many uh, the majority
1: yeah Which because if it was so where do you go 51 percent well
0: it's not a statistical matter of course
1: <laughs> <laughs> but in a way it, it is because you know if if a, if a work elicits an, an equal amount of praise and criticism what a, what the hell do you do with that one
0: Yeah. Well, it's not, in a way it's, it's not as much a matter of what we decide to do with it as what happens. In other words, as in uh, natural selection, a work that is uh, in question as either great, a great work or not a great work will survive or disappear. And that will be either validation or rejection of its greatness.
1: So we really can't say that then, that work is is that's been written within the past twenty five years. Let's say we have to pretty well reserve judgment
0: on those. That's right. That's exactly why we have to reserve judgment on those. It has not confronted the many generations, the great variety of kinds of people mm-hmm. that is part of the test of greatness.
1: You think about it over time, you're going to get that many more views or perspectives on that to a point where you fill out the whole circle after a while, and
0: and it just takes time. It does. It really does. Yeah. And there's no way around it. And yet you can ask, uh, and it's a legitimate question, how much time does it take? Maybe we consider a work that's a hundred years old great.
1: Well, I think there's consensus that Ulysses
0: was great. That was
1: within a hundred years. Yes, that's right.
0: And there are uh, classic modern works, other classic modern works that we consider great. But we have to say they're great within the, the scope of the time that's passed and the taste of those, which is also a factor, who have proclaimed it great. You know.
1: Post-modern theory, it evaluates things like sociological context, yeah. power structures. It turns up its nose at evaluative criticism. Well, who cares about what you think? I want to understand this in right. its context.
0: Well, I think that approach in itself is subject to the test of time. I happen to think that it is really, it's a very interesting approach and it has its, its, its place, but it's not clear to me that uh, a rejection of evaluation will stand up to the test of time. I think it's in, and here I'm going to use another controversial phrase, human nature, to evaluate, to prioritize human beings don't live without values yeah we either like something or we don't like it yeah and that's fundamental and that's evaluation the fundamental form of evaluation you can't escape it and that's why I don't think that a rejection of evaluation will last very long as at least a very popular or and I'm not saying popularity is a measure as a particularly valid measure but in some, in, in an intelligent way of criticism. For one thing, you've got to, decide, you people will always have to decide what works are we going to teach? What works are we going to include in, in all of our classes? And why? Well, even the, um, the deconstructionists and the uh, post, other kinds of postmoderns who hold the theory you just described hold up particular works for analysis Why did they choose those works?
1: because they were written by women or African Americans or anyone but a dead white male
0: right and that's fine I have nothing no certainly no objection to that that way of choosing but it's a form of evaluation it's a form of saying you know works by women. By African Americans, by anybody but dead white males, has a certain value.
1: Yeah, but they're being taught for maybe that they aren't as good, but they're just the fact that they are by bi- women. That's why we're teaching them because they're underrepresented.
0: Yeah, but the implicit the assumption implicit in that is that works by un or underrepresented people have a certain value that mm-hmm. claims their attention. What I'm suggesting is that they're making evaluations, and it's inescapable, and that's not wrong, but it's no less a result of uh, a kind of conditioned thinking than works that appeared in hierarchical societies that have traditional values. Evaluation is a human activity that will occur regardless of your rejection of it or not. Mm -hmm. It's simply a question of, Consciously and deliberately choosing the values by which you are going to live and act and think. We they have chosen, and I think, and I don't argue with their choice actually, to reject traditional values for the purposes at least of criticism and intellectual activity. And that's a choice that I think uh, can and does and actually does yield very interesting results, original insights. That's why I don't reject that critical approach entirely. Its value, to use that word, Mm -hmm. is going to be a matter of exactly what Longinus talks about, the test of time.
1: Well, I thought I was going to say, it seems to me that perhaps once we get to a point where there isn't a perceived prejudice against a certain kind of literature, when we get to that point, then you can can bring in Longinus again, or
0: uh, a universal evaluative criteria that you may be right about that yeah in other words that uh, the kind of criticism you're talking about is a is a useful and necessary critical theory for the time being mm-hmm.
1: kind of a corrective yeah
0: i can i can accept that and in fact that itself i think is consistent with with a longinian understanding of greatness because longinus doesn't reject any presuppositions except the ones that he provides. And actually, he's consistent with the deconstructionist and postmodernist ideas. Longinus not only says you know, that uh, great works are the products of great minds, noble souls, he also says, but they're also the products of the, of the time and place in which they're written. He introduces into criticism, as Aristotle, for example, does not, and I'm not familiar with any other classical critic who does, a sociology of criticism in that section in, in his work, in which he uh, sort of rants against the uh, decadence of his times and sees that as the reason why there are no great works. I mean, it doesn't sound like a deconstructionist approach exactly, but it does see uh, great works as dependent upon the so- social conditions that give rise to noble souls, and great works are the products of noble minds. Sublimity is the product of noble minds.
1: Yeah, and politics is, you would think, would be about trying to create an environment in which noble minds can thrive.
0: Yes. That's a rather unusual way of looking at politics uh, nowadays, of course.
1: Just in closing, then, did he touch on the power structures at all? Like, did he recognize, well, whoever's in power, if it's men, And women are relegated to their position in society, which may not involve writing anything.
0: Yeah. Did did he get into any of that? He didn't explicitly, but in the examples that he chooses of sublimity, you can see where he's thinking about that. He's one of the early champions of Sappho. I shouldn't say early champions, there had been earlier ones. But he's a great champion of Sappho. He is the source, of, his work is the source of one of Sappho's greatest poems, the sole source of that poem. He, he quotes he, it, you mean? Yes, yeah. the entire poem, and I think it's the only uh, whole poem that he quotes in his work on the sublime. And he offers it as an example of the choice and arrangement of details in the creation of a sublime passage. And he does a a rather extended commentary on the poem. He recognizes Sappho as just as no less sublime in lyric poetry than Homer is in epic poetry. He offers this example of it and shows how and why she achieves that kind of greatness. So it's clear that uh, he, he has no prejudice against a woman as any less capable of the same kind of sublimity as Homer, the greatest of the poets. The variety and the diversity of the choices that he makes in his illustration show that he doesn't have the kind of uh, conventional... For the time. uh, Yeah, set of political values that uh, other authors would. What does he point to
1: in her work that makes it so great, then? How does he defend his attribution of greatness to, to the poem?
0: Okay, The poem that he chooses begins, uh, Peer of the gods, he seems to me, the blissful man who sits and gazes at thee before him. And of course, like many of her poems, it's a love poem to a woman, but it begins in a way that reflects her admiration, her love, through the man who is sitting next to the woman of her adoration, and uh, it's he who seems like a god because he's seated next to her. It's a very subtle poem. And in the whole length of the poem, Longina shows how she chooses and arranges vivid, luminous details to create a kind of ecstatic effect of love, sheer adoration. In the reader? Yeah.
1: Of the the woman that she is adoring or of the words?
0: through the words of the woman that she is adoring.
1: Okay, so she's, in other words, she's helping you to feel the way she feels using words. Yes,
0: and it's a kind of ecstasy. It's the creation of an ecstatic bond between reader and poet. Longinus incorporates into his critical theory a kind of platonic theory of poetry, that it's a kind of divine madness. But in Plato, it's the poet in Plato's Ion, his di- that dialogue, he talks about the poetic madness, the divine madness that results in poetry. It's the poet who's mad. In Longinus' critical theory, the kind of transport or ecstasy that the reader experiences uh, is analogous and similar, creates a bond between reader and poet. This is a reader response theory, but that bond is created entirely through the manipulation of language, of course, in great literary works, which is what he's talking about. So he shows, in the case of Sappho's poem, how she does this, how the reader comes to share and bond with the poet, Sappho, her ecstatic experience of adoration of this woman that she's in love with through the selection and the arrangements of the tales. He says there are five, actually, there are five, back up just a minute, sources of sublimity. The first is the power of great conception. The second is intensity of emotion. These are innate in the in the poet, he says. The other three are products of art, and they are appropriate uh, figures of thought and language. The excellent choice of individual words, diction, and the arrangement of words, that is, style, uses Sappho's poem to talk about the arrangement of details and in the, in the apt choice of words the, choice, the diction that she uses the arrangement of those words to express those details to create the sublime moment that is that poem and the result is a, presumably a shared a bonding uh, experience between the reader and the writer the poet and, that's and, and a, of course you, way of saying sublimity.
1: And of course you want to go back to it.
0: Yes, because, exactly, exactly. You know, who wouldn't want to? Because it's a powerful experience. I mean, mm. use students jargon, it's a rush. From what you said there, then that
1: definition is the poet's desire to communicate this passion, for you to share it. What about poetry that's, quote, difficult or bordering on incomprehensibility
0: right well as longinus doesn't address that per se but in his conception of the sublime there there are very different kinds of sublimity sublimity so i wouldn't be surprised that he would admit a kind of sublimity to that kind of poetry if you were thinking for example of uh characteristically t.s Eliot's poetry but no, well, would... much classic modernism that's often obscure and elusive and uh, difficult. He
1: typically provides
0: footnotes, though. Right.
1: <laughs> Someone like Ashbery doesn't.
0: Well, for Longinus, what he understands and, and gives examples of and says are sublime passages, or always passages. Because you cannot sustain the kind of ecstasy, the kind of transport, that he sees as the most sing, the singularly most important characteristic of sublimity mm-hmm. for very long. Yeah. Therefore, you don't have long works that are altogether sublime. You have sublime passages in great works.
1: You're not necessarily supposed to understand everything in a poem immediately or if right. ever. Right. But. If you're going to come back to it, there has to be a passage or something that that gives you some kind of stimulation
0: or pleasure. Yeah, and you might call it a transcendent moment, as long as it's understood in a kind of Heideggerian sense that it's not uh, transcendent of time and space, it is a glimpse into being, that kind of aha moment that you're capable of having in the peak experiences of life. And there are different kinds of peak experiences, and I think uh, Longinus's theory accommodates them all. Like, like what? Like what well, is an moment? There are well, there are intellectual peak experiences when suddenly you have an insight that may be imparted to you by a great work. I mean, you may come of it on your own, I mean, which is a very creative uh, kind of intellectual insight, or kind of, but you can also learn. The greatest experiences of learning, in a way, from great works is those intellectual peak experiences. Enlightenment. Yeah, of a kind.
1: If there's a a poem then that doesn't contain that, then there's no incentive for you to continue to want to think about it.
0: Well, right. Again, it's not clear exactly what he means by the power of great conception, but by interpretation of it as intellectual strength means that there is a, a noetic component there, always. Uh, a component of gnosis, of insight, yeah, an epiphany, a yeah. revelation. A moment of real insight, that aha moment. That's a component of the truly sublime, always. And that's the main component for Longinus.
1: But it can take different
0: characters. It can be of a spiritual character or an aesthetic character, That's not to say that there isn't a residual mystery. It's the mystery that draws you back, in a sense. There has to be something that makes you
1: want to come back, spend time with it, figure it out.
0: Right. You have another moment, perhaps. The great work perennially satisfies with its stimulation and its uh, sense of uh, always giving you something. And yet you never plumb the depth of its mystery. It appeals deeply to something uh, human within us and within us all as human beings. This desire to know. Yes. Curiosity. Yes. And yet it doesn't exhaust that desire. It doesn't, because it does address the the deepest mysteries of our experience and of our... Like um, why we hear what's going to happen after death. That's right. Uh, in, in a discursive mode but works of art there are works of art that Longinus's theory also accommodates that are not of course at all discursive the poem by Sappho is not a didactic or a discursive work it doesn't seek to impart knowledge in any conventional sense of that word and yet there's a noetic component of the experience that she recreates for the reader the perceptive reader you can walk away from a poem by Sappho as from any great lyric or purely um, visual medium, for that matter, with a sense of a gain in knowledge, although you haven't sorted out in your intellect exactly what it was. You mm-hmm. uh, get a little closer to figuring it out. It makes a little more sense, and yet the, the mystery is still there.
1: What do you think is the greatest work, then, of the 20th century?
0: Well, insofar as uh, we can all play that game, because if Longinus is right, that's what we do in establishing the greatness of great works, and everybody has the right to participate. The great conversation. That's right, yeah. Uh, I would say uh, the greatest novel would be one by Joyce, and I suppose because of his scope of its ambition, power of its great conception... Ulysses would be a a better choice than Portrait of the Artist.
1: And Finnegan's Wake, which goes a bit too far.
0: It goes too far, exactly. Although Longinus says, he makes a point of saying, a a very flawed work of great sublimity is much to be preferred than a perfect work of no sublimity.
1: I've been speaking with uh, Edwin L. Connor, who is an associate professor at Kentucky State University in Frankfort, Kentucky. Thanks again. Thank you.